Let's Talk Development, Season 2, Episode 1. Welcome everyone to uh, an episode of Let's Talk Development, a podcast by the Consortium for Development Policy Research. My name is Ali Hasnain. Um, I'm a professor of economics at uh, the Law University of Management Sciences, where we're recording this. And it's a delight to have back in Pakistan, and I believe for the first time in LAMS, Professor Stefan Durkhan, who is a professor of economic policy uh, and the director of the um, of CSAE, the Center for um, the Study of African Eco- Economies, uh, at the Blavatnik School of Government and at the Economics Department at Oxford. Uh, Stefan, welcome. You um, have you sort of in this rare. a uh, list of people who both have uh, a long academic career but also have done a lot of policy advisement uh, you served uh, i believe from 2011 to 2017 as chief economist at defed at the uk uh, and subsequently as an advisor to the foreign secretary um, of the uk government um, but your research also goes into uh, things like risk and risk mitigation for vulnerable communities in the developing world Uh, you've looked at schooling environment industrial policy lots of things um across the developing world uh so it's wonderful to have you here and we're looking forward to getting into in particular talking about your book gambling on development which i found to be a really interesting addition to this sort of long list of books that try to think big picture on what it is uh, that is uh, wrong with the economy um so let's start with just asking first uh you you have this uh right at the start of your book you have this anecdote about how you advised the the uh, what was it the secretary of state for international development i believe um on what a lay person um uh, coming into thinking about development should read in order to get a big picture view of you know how we can uh positively impact development so what would your list include besides your own book well um the real what my list today i i'm not entirely convinced it can be summarized in this but no look what happened then and i probably would include still some of these books is that you know there are these books they are not necessarily the best on development but my task was really to help to inform her of what are kind of the the kind of quite leading ways of thinking about development to do the leading mental models about how development comes about and not and and to actually offer it to her um if i were to you know i i would read all kinds of books i don't disagree i don't agree with you know yeah they should read why nations fail because there's a lot of people that actually think that actually epitomizes the essence of of what development is about i would probably encourage them okay you can read jeff sachs even though i am not at all a fan of the way jeff is writing and and acting and behaving and all kinds of other things about Jeff Sachs but it's still worth reading it if you work on Africa you would read Paul Collier you would read Danny Rodrick you would read uh, Joe Stiglitz and not because i fundamentally think that these males are all the right thinkers of development but they're quite influential they 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 shape people's minds and they 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 get people to uh to think about development maybe rightly or wrongly and so yeah so i i think you know if you have a politician they want to know what the kind of the main main ways of thinking about it because once they go into the world that's what the people they meet often have as their framework so you will want uh, to to have a look at that okay so um you know some of these books have become really influential in 
framing how the development sector thinks. Um, I think it was in the late 90s or early 2000s that Jeffrey Sachs's uh, book uh, became very influential. Uh, what was it? The End of Poverty, mm-hmm. um, which suggested that you need to think about pushing in lots of aid monies and that this big push will, in, in some sense, solve our issues. Um, perhaps five or ten years later, we had... Um, a couple of books that also then became very influential over the next decade. One was the uh, Banerjee and Duflo Poor Economics, which is sort of really nitty-gritty. How do you solve particular problems and sort of really uh, leading the charge um, on thinking about development, not in terms of this sort of on, on a grand scale necessarily, but let's try and solve uh, individual things. Um, and then also uh, Asimoglu and Robinson. Why, you know, when you title a book called Why Nations Fail... <laughs> You're really um, trying to tackle those type of things, right? So their argument was um, that you need to think about banking um, political power into institutions and that this creates sort of virtuous cycles. Why is this the best book on development now? (laughs) What is the value add for people who might be thinking of picking this up? Look, I'm I'm a person that my way of thinking about development and a lot of things in the world is about complementarities. So I think my book hopefully complements somehow the way some of these things, these these books are working. You know, um, actually as a researcher, in my actual papers, I'm a micro-development economist. I actually do RCTs. It may not seem like it when I when you look at the book, but that's what I do. I think it's a very useful tool to actually figure out how things, how relationships, how causalities work in very particular problems. So I think as a as a way of thinking, as a way of solving puzzles in terms of, you know, how things work, it actually, I find it quite a useful thing. But one of the things that I didn't want to stick to that book is then the work I do in a policy environment where I'm a strong believer that you need to have a big picture view. I'm not saying that Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee or Michael Kramer, you know, that they, that, well, they, they deserve their Nobel Prize in a way of, of what they do. But what I was worrying about is that without actually having a thinking about how the overall picture is working, you may not get there. Now, you could go to Why Nations Fail, and it's, it's interesting. It's a very particular thing. But let's not forget that the main empirical base, you know, we could quarrel about the strength of that empirical base, but the main one is, is about history, is about the histor- historical determination of institutional outcomes. That's a lot what institutional economics is. That's what, what a lot of their famous papers did. Now, what I didn't want to do is to write a book that simply said it's all history. So you could have maybe yesterday flow, we can all fix it. The, um, you know, yeah, we can fix small problems. The kind of um, Asimoglu Robinson was a bit like, oh, it's all history. And it's a bit like, you know, that's what we need to understand. Of course, I think there's a role. What I wanted to write is a book much more about the agency of people that at the moment in time are in power, but also can do big things. It doesn't have to be just minor civil servants doing small things or getting a health program right or whatever. I still wish they do it, but it actually was trying to actually have a book that talked about the big picture. That, you know, once you've worked in the policy environment, you see politics all around you and you can't ignore that politics matters. You can't just be the technocrat and solving the kind of plumber or whatever you are as a technician, but you actually want to have a big picture. And I wanted to write a book that actually tried to get a sense of here and now, 
even if history matters, there is a part of agency today for those who have power in a society to actually do things. And I wanted to give a big picture view, a framework that actually helps to, when we look, say, at a Pakistan or a Ghana or a Bangladesh, a China or an Indonesia, that we have a framework to say, okay, why are they growing fast and seem to be doing quite inclusive development? And why do others actually being quite stagnant? And then we can come into it where Pakistan would fit, but I'm afraid it's probably not in the in the group of the winners. Well, that, that, that's absolutely fair. You, I think um, perhaps in the book or elsewhere, you've talked about so the, this big realization from visiting China. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that? And then we'll go in, get into the elite bargain. So, so I learned about a lot of countries, including actually initially about South Asia um, and then later also about China by working in Africa. So, you know, I, I'm someone who fundamentally, you know, I, I, I earned my keep, so to speak. I earned my academic reputation for working on countries like Tanzania or uh, and later Ethiopia. And I observed that a lot of the narratives that people had were very inspired initially by South Asia. And then the political narratives or the policy narratives were either inspired or in contradiction to the kind of Chinese narrative. So I learned a lot about these countries. And one of the things you learn when you work in an African particular context is that imported models are pretty hard and they often fail. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a simple Western, Westminster political model or a Washington consensus coming out of America, you know, you worry about it. Just as I got very worried about things that said, oh, we learned from villages in India that this is how things worked. I was working in villages in Ethiopia and it was very different from what I learned in my textbooks. I also could see that China's uh, exporting of their model was very much like, oh, well, we did it in a particular way, how we can do it. So the realization when I started on traveling to China was a lot to do with, you know, what is it of this model that exports? And the more you look at China, in fact, I was last week in China again, you know, this is quite an alien place as seen from ice from Pakistan or South Asia or indeed from Africa. This doesn't look like it, let alone it doesn't look like London. It feels like a very different thing, the way you interact with officials. So what is the essence? First of all, the essence has to be that we're very successful. What they do when they go to other countries, and I mean, sorry, I should be very clear, successful in the sense of the takeoff. You know, I don't know where the China model will go in 20 and 30 years, whether there will be US or Singapore standards of living. But we know pretty well that they were amazingly successful in reducing poverty and doing it. And then you ask yourself, but does this model travel? Can I go to, say, Kenya or Tanzania and say, oh, just do like the Chinese did? Which, incidentally, sometimes Chinese scholars like Justin Lin, former chief economist of the World Bank, does. Just do like us. Do the state. Do special economic zones. And do infrastructure, thanks to Chinese firms, and everything will be fine. And then you come in China and say, by the way, that's not how they did it. Actually, it is far more interesting how they did it. And then you wonder, what is the essence? And I think the essence of what they can export is fundamentally, not before 1978 and 79, but fundamentally after 78 or 79, showing that, you know, have an enormously deep commitment to try to be successful in growth and in food security, and thanks to that, also delivering poverty reduction. But the main thing that you can export is saying, look, everything is around this deep commitment of making progress around it and then using whatever model can work for China 
And that model, well, they had the Communist Party of China, which was pretty powerful, so maybe use them to deliver that. But also you had a state that had grown up over thousands of years as a centralized state with quite a meritocratic bureaucracy, so pretty good delivery capacity, with a lot of taxation that's centralized and that you get the resources. Then you say, well, if I'm going to do development, use the resources you have. Well, these are definitely the resources. And I thought, if you're ever going to do state-led development, you're going to do it in China. And you may well be successful. And on top of that, you used the resources. You exploited the natural resources you have most of. And what do you have in China? People. And so you have a development model that a little bit exploiting, but definitely exploiting them both in a negative and a positive way, actually using them as your basic economic model. But the underlying thing is like, we're going to make it work with what we have, what we have to start with, and you actually built of it. So I keep on telling, in fact, last week again, what you should export is this deep commitment to growth and development that you had after 79. And that maybe incidentally is a little bit waning over control of the state and so on. And President Xi, it's not quite the same. But in this entire period, that's what you can export. And that's what you then actually, the realization is not what you do, but how you do it within the resources you have and find the model that can work for you and that helps you to progress. Okay, so the essential thing for countries to start developing is a government and a society that figures out what's working and doubles down on that and moves away from stuff that isn't working, right? If if that, is that a fair summary? It's, 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 it's one key part of it. Mm-hmm. And on top of it, if they want to be successful in development, the political and economic elite in that country, and indeed the military elite and the civil service and so on, they all will want to achieve that. Yes. So you need somehow, not just knowing what works in your society, if you know what works in your society, you could actually, you have a choice as a society, or at least those who have power in the, in, in, in the country, they have a choice. They could, for example, say, I'm just using all the what I have in my society just to steal and line my pockets. I could have a kleptocracy. Or I could have a strongly controlling state that actually says, I keep on rewarding all the people that put me to power and so on doing. You don't need to grow. And, you know, if you have natural resources like Nigeria, you could have a fairly effective state that is built around simply just let's redistribute the natural resources amongst some tens of thousands of people. They have very good life, including a flat in London and in Cambridge and in Oxford, and, and they can do it. Or you could have in the end... You, you, you use what you have, but you also have within it an objective function, a craving that actually you want to achieve growth and development. Because if that's if you don't really want to achieve that, well, you're not going to make progress either. So have the right objective, development and growth as part of your elite deal. And secondly, then work with what you have and understand what you can do, what you can't do. Okay, so <clears throat> once you've got a country that moves from being in an underdeveloped state to having an elite that buys into, that creates that broad consensus and is broadly rational, can make mistakes, can can have those detours, but also has some sort of course correction mechanism. Yeah. In some sense, the key work of development is done. The rest of it is detail. It's, it's yeah. uh, right? So the cover of the book uh, very memorably has this... Um, uh, gamble that that your elite are playing. That's one person in military fatigue, probably a bureaucrat. I, I don't know if this is a religious leader or a bureaucrat, and then your business elite, right? 
And so you're saying that these are the elite that have to then come together and say, let's work to try and build or take a gamble because it's risky. We might lose our way, but let's try and do something different than what we've done and maybe we'll win the lottery. Um, so the elite, uh, I would read as, as these people that you've listed here, is there anyone else in the elite? That's the first question. Yeah. So, you know, I have this kind of slightly tautological definition of the elite is that those people who have power and influence, mm -hmm. they typically will include indeed what you described. So it could be the politician, the military person, the business elite, civil servants, probably part of it. Actually, journal, journalists and academics matter because they tell the stories around it so they can be, be part of it. These are the people in power and with holder power, people who can actually have the power to block it as well. Okay, And yes, I actually say these are the people within it typically. Now, political scientists will know that you could write full books and whole articles about the definition of the elite. So I'm trying to do slightly pragmatic here and say, look, in each context, sometimes it's smaller, sometimes it's larger. But it, and in fact, it's not everybody in it. Elite consensus is not a key concept. It's usually a dominant coalition. Sure. You can exclude certain as long as you can do it. Sure. So they can be in it. So an interesting thing is that, and, and it links a little bit, so as long as what you need somehow is their commitment. Why is that? Not because I really love the elite and I think they are the leading lights of society and I should mm -hmm. admire them or whatever. Or indeed, you know, they mean some societies may include the religious leaders and I just think, oh, they should get all the grace uh, that we can give them and so on. We want to do that. It's more that because they, they can block progress. Mm -hmm. Why we need them is that they have status quo power. They can keep the status quo, which they usually understand. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, they can do it. So, so for me, they are a group of people who have a hold over society and we can't make progress unless we can somehow get within it a dominant coalition uh, to do this. Mm -hmm. Now, you keep on asking and I think you want, I'm going to preempt your question. Yeah. Aren't, where are people there? And maybe that's one of the things, you know, where is the pressures that you could have? So one of the most powerful mechanism why an elite may actually gamble on something like growth and development is not because they love it. Yes, you could say they could maximize the rents from it, but it's such a gamble. You know, they understand the status quo mm -hmm. and change is usually dangerous for any elite. It's usually for them to have holding power and to keep on having it is they need legitimacy and kind of somehow or another there could be pressures from below, from a side, from, from wherever it is that they need legitimacy. I would actually go back to China, interpret why they changed from pure ideological communist party, that everything they did was pure ideologic ideology under Mao, cultural revolution, disrupting whatever you want to all in for the sake of ideology. Why they went to something like pragmatic, like it doesn't matter whether the cat is white or black as long as it catches mice, mm -hmm. is that we're losing legitimacy. They were actually under pressure and they were getting really concerned. Will they keep it together? And the reformers won the game because they said, look, this is a way for us to keep power. We're going to get legitimacy from the population. And actually, looking back at it remarkably successfully, mm -hmm. with a lot of legitimacy within that population, through growth and development, through growth and food security, and also then later poverty reduction and so on. And I think that's where somehow... Where do people come into it? They can actually force legitimacy one way or another within your context, within your system, one way or another, they can at least have pressure. Right. So 
you've described uh, China, but there the are other examples of countries where it seems that at some moment, the elite come together and say, you know, let's get out, get out of our own way and let's take this gamble, the, the development mm-hmm. gamble. What stops other countries from taking it? No. So what stops them is essentially if, if you're kind of stuck in a kind of dominant coalition where the incentives for the status quo are so strong or because certain players within that elite bargain themselves are so strong and maybe powers that only have an interest in stability and nothing else blocks you from actually taking a bit of that gamble. Let me get a couple of examples. You could have context where you, for example, have natural resources. Natural resources reduce the incentives for change for the elite because you don't have to do anything. (laughs) You know, the oil rents in Nigeria will still flow even if you don't grow. In fact, that's what's happening. Virtually any economic activity is just recycling of oil rents in the not-tradable sector. So natural resources are really reducing the incentives for change. They reduce your incentive for change. You could also have other kind of setups. Military governments or governments with a, where military is very important. You know, that kind of establishment may well actually have largely as an objective stability. Stability is often, for these kind of forces, the main thing. Their power depends on stability or what I usually call just enough stability, you know playing around with instability so you can be legitimized as the force for stability. It's very hard for another model, and in fact, military sometimes try this, you know. In Myanmar, they tried it to actually be a slightly more different type of player, playing into the reforms, opening up, and then playing a role with uh, when, when uh, the, the, um, Aung San Suu Kyi was trying to do it. We shouldn't forget, a part of the military actually did a transition because they thought it's going to be a better way. There was actually a reformist part of the military, not necessarily at all military supported them. Mm. They were trying to do it. And then, of course, the democratization came. And actually, I would then say the mistake was probably made by the democratic forces not to do a deal with this kind of reformist part of the military. Mm. So it gave an excuse for the other parts to take over. So, you know, you could have military players in the military that try to do it. They go back to their reflex. We understand the system that is just rents from natural resources and we take power again. So military often has an incentive for just enough stability and they may also not want to. So, you know, in every society, here and elsewhere, you will have other ways that this plays out. And and yeah, so why would they not want to do it? Because their objective function is never going to be really aligned with growth and development. So most... Developing countries are usually highly unequal societies. Yes. In Pakistan, just 8% of the country owns a car. Yeah. The government is maybe, the civilian government is maybe 2% of the population. The military, the entire military is about half of 1% of the population. And so the question then becomes, how is it, um, how will the elite um, ever get out of their own way? Um, given the fact that it's always, you know, their tendency will always be stability. Yeah. Can I just play with it a little bit? You know, we could have scenarios here, mm-hmm. you know. You know, the I think in the case of Myanmar, I think we lost an opportunity. And I'm, we also, international community and so on, there was an opportunity to actually get a new form of coalition to form. Because not forgetting kind of my framework, it's always about 
a dominant coalition within the elite. There's not everybody in it. And, you know, there will be groups even within kind of establishment in status quo forces that, that may actually uh, see this. So, so you could get into this, you know, even naturally source-rich economies. Let's not forget, Indonesia also had looked very similar to the Nigerian economy in the early 1970s. A big part of its revenue came from natural resources and so on. But there, the view from Silharto clearly was when he took power and had to have kicked out Sukarno, was clearly a legitimacy deficit. And legitimacy, a quest for legitimacy, look, the history is complicated there, but if you think of it, Suharto came at a very difficult period for legitimacy. He kicked out the old elite, the Sukarnist nationalist elite, who controlled all the state-owned enterprises. And then meanwhile, he represented the military, who only a few years earlier had killed hundreds of thousands of people in the countryside. Legitimacy was definitely in short supply. And then he thought, okay, how can I get legitimacy? And he clearly went for an economic model as a military leader. And he decided to do something very unlikely, is to invite Japanese investment. You look, we're talking early 1970s. For Indonesia, that was very early to get the, the, the occupying brutal force to actually become an investor in your country. Mm-hmm. He played that because he thought, you know, in dynamically, and actually pretty good game. He stayed in power for more than 25 years. Mm-hmm as a play, way of gaming and saying, look, it will get us a new group to do because the Sukarnist otherwise will kick me out and it will build up some legitimacy in the population because I live for growth and development. So, you know, this is an unlikely player because stability is usually the name of the game of the military to actually say, well, but we may have much longer staying power in that way. Mm-hmm. Don't forget also in other things, you know, it's an interesting thing is that, um, you know, maybe there's things to be learned here, is that let's never forget, for example, how Ronald Reagan uh, played the game in the Cold War by actually strengthening the military and doing massively building of the military. But the only way to do it is to actually having a very dynamic growth economy mm-hmm. and actually could actually shame the Soviet Union uh, to actually into having to give up that they couldn't really su- uh, succeed that game. Growth actually is in the interest in the in the United States of the military as well. And so you can get it. You now, you know, there's maybe other neighbors that other countries have where they're actually growing faster. And so you may actually start getting other incentives that actually growth is really important to keep up as the military as well in terms of doing it. So, look, there's multiple ways, indeed, some of these players that favor the status quo, including the military, may see it in their interest to start growing their economy. So I, I actually read it differently, which is that if you look at the Cold War from the Russian perspective, they lost the Cold War, they conceded defeat, but the military remained entrenched yes. in, in the political system of Russia. Yeah. Um, the way I've thought about this intuitively before reading the book was um, people who live on farmhouses, play on golf courses and retire to London will not really be able to change the status quo because it's just much easier to carry on with the good life. Um, but let's suppose that the elite are able to get out of their own way and they start creating a real and credible bargain. How do you create credibility in, in that sort of bargain? Uh, uh, look, I, I can't help but I'm briefly commenting on as well. And it's actually one of these factors, like these unintended consequences of, of uh, something that worked very positively for a lot of emerging economies, which is basically globalization. It actually probably makes it harder for latecomers mm-hmm. to lock in exactly for the reason because it became so easy 
to to put your money in Cyprus, Dubai, or in uh, or in London for that matter in real estate. And so somehow your your entrenched interest in your own economy is actually much weaker. And so you know somehow there's there's other countries as well where it is just very hard to do it because. The children of the elite uh, or the elite families have diversified themselves globally. And so actually, it doesn't really matter if you mm -hmm. keep your own country back because you have diversified your interests globally. How do you get credibility if you actually start doing the game? And look, I still think that, you know, when countries face deep crisis, as for example, Pakistan is in some way that is basically external finance dries up. You will at some point, there will be players in the elite that want to make progress. Now, suppose, you know, we may be skeptical, but there will be elite players that want to do it. So how do they build credibility? Is to do somewhat unlikely things. I don't mean crazy things and gambling on crazy projects. But it's a very interesting thing to actually remember, for example, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, now hailed as this amazing leader, because he came from a party that was very much interested in state-led development. And, uh, you know, he came in power in the way that some countries with clientelist governments come to power. He had people helping him to, to pay for his election. I'm never going to say he bought the election, but he had big financiers. Mm -hmm. So one of the interesting things with Lee Kuan Yew is one of the early things he did. He actually jailed his main, uh, the, main, the main industrialist that had funded his elections. Now, that's an unlikely thing. If you want to say, I'm going to fight on corruption of this state, you put your friends in jail. You don't put your enemies in jail. You, 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 put, uh, you, 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 you work like that. That's what I mean you do unlikely things. In most countries, you know, reasonable people, observers of a country, could put together, each of us, a list of 10 things that would be quite remarkable if it happened. Now, that list will not be the same for each of us. There could be an interesting list to be made and say, look, I would believe on the basis of their actions and behaviors mm -hmm. that they actually generally mean what they do. It's a bit like bit reveal take a preference in economics. If I keep on buying a particular good, well, I must mean that I actually like that good and that I have a preference for that. Mm -hmm. I think that's how you do. It's actions and behaviors, mm -hmm. unlikely things, and you actually work on it. And for most countries I've worked on, I would actually quite happily make that list and actually okay. not necessarily challenge them. And I would never make it as a conditionality because then you don't believe it anyway. It would actually be they voluntarily do certain things that are actually quite remarkable. And that's how I think you would build credibility. So one of my problems with foreign aid is that it uh, removes the consequences of policy actions from, from the immediate time frame that the ruler is thinking about. It pushes the consequences further out. And so it's fine for them to take bad decisions today no. because their own public will not cotton on to the fact that those act those results are the outcome of actions today. Yeah. Should the IMF, World Bank and foreign lenders just shut shop? So, look, you know, there are people, some reasonable, some unreasonable people that, that, that advise this kind of thing. I'm actually, the future on, on development aid is much more about selectivity. As you said earlier, if you get a government that's quite commitment and quite self-aware in terms of what it's doing, you know, if you're carefully using the resources you're given or get access to at preferential rates, mm -hmm. but you fundamentally have a commitment to use these resources well, 
Aid becomes simply an extension of the budget constraint of a, of a reasonable objective function, with a reasonable objective function. I am actually convinced that places like Bangladesh or Ghana are actually examples of where aid made a lot of sense. You know, actually the UK, in an interesting sort of way, uh, together with Australia, we probably ended up paying more than a billion pounds, billion and a half dollars, to BRAC over the years, an NGO. It's an interesting government who allows you to do that. So in a sense, that suggests, you know, they don't mind that you do it because they have clear role within their civil society and their organization in delivering health and other kind of programs. So you can say, okay, that's actually very complimentary. We, we, we allow the health sector there not to have certain strains and do it. Meanwhile, over time, they've begun to build up a better service delivery because the incentives are quite aligned. So I don't mind. What about Nigeria or Malawi, or dare I say Pakistan? You know, it's a much more trickier thing. If the objective function doesn't seem to be aligned with development, you do exactly what you, de what you describe. It's a very striking thing that in the years before COVID, the, the largest concession, the four largest recipient of concessional loans in the world were uh, from the World Bank, were the Democratic Republic of Congo, I would call it a kleptocracy, Nigeria, I've mentioned them before, um, and it included Pakistan as well, and not necessarily being using these resources that well, given where it got us afterwards. And I forgot the fourth one, but it was a similar type of case. That's not a good idea. It's basically if you give your resources to the failing places, then you don't set the incentives well. You know, if countries like, I, I think Pakistan is one of them, per capita and as a percentage of the budget, your health expenditure is actually rather dismal. Nigeria is one of the lowest in the world. There's no point the outsider coming in, try to do good and pay for health because you give an excuse never to take it seriously within your own political economy. So yes, if if you want governments that have legitimacy, at least this, if it's not through political process, at least through development, then you can't just give them an excuse not to do it. I've got six other questions, but I've been told uh, that we have to start wrapping up. Um, the sociologist Seymour Martin Lipset said, those who only know one country know no country. That's a charge that certainly can't be levied on you. You've been, you've traveled the world. Um, but I want to ask you what it is to know a country. So how would you measure the existence of a bargain? What would be the diagnostic test? Um, because, you know, that would inform whether you, you would advise governments to give loans, for example. Yeah. Um, in some sense, whenever you do these sort of broad um, magisterial works, there's always, you know, you can tell the story one way or the other. Yeah. How should we find the countries that might be on the cusp of uh, of a development bargain today. Yeah. So so I'll come back to it actually the way I was trying to argue earlier. I would I would definitely say there is no single data set that will tell me because then it becomes tautological. Then you start measuring based on success and then you would say past success will be con continued and so on. It has to be contextual and it's actually quite a, an interesting challenge because how do you do comparative work in a reasonable way that you actually can compare where you say a lot of the key things are contextual. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a that's a, a proper challenge you could levy against me. It is actually, you know, if I could predict it, then it would become historical. That's not what I mean, because that's not agency. Okay? So it has to be about actions and behaviors. I really think, you know, a research project where it is actually about 
eliciting some of the th unlikely things and actually asking yourself, have actually the, has the government acted partly against its short-term self-interest, consciously and objectively with a longer-term interest at mind? Has it been willing to gamble for short-term unpopularity domain doing difficult things with the idea of actually taking some of the bigger things of before? Actually, we could begin to research that. We could say in countries, you know, can you do it? Now, reasonable people can disagree on this. But how would I know whether the certain countries are doing it? It's, it's like that I would do. I would look at actions and behaviors, and I would ask myself, if they just were interested in perpetuating what they had, would they do this? Do they just do this because there's a gun next to the head of the IMF? Or actually, are they generally trying to reconstruct something bit by bit that actually is doing difficult things and actually trying to make progress and finding a language to communicate with the population, trying to see whether they can survive the political cycles as a result, then I would begin to say, okay, these are the kind of places. I think there's some places in the world where this is happening. There's also places where it's not happening. And, um, you know, I still stick to it as I find, for example, Bangladesh quite interesting. You know, they did a smart thing recently. They did a pre-crisis they did a pre-crisis loan. Before they had a crisis, they started having a list of difficult things to do. They got finance for it. They implemented it. There's other countries in Africa that say, look, they begin to do it. Do I see it here? I'm not sure I see it. But that's the test you would do, you know, with an election process coming in with difficult decisions. Can they actually rise above it and doing sensible things that you wouldn't quite expect them to do and still trying to not saying it simply because someone else told us, but actually do it and, and finding and construct a form of consensus across political divides and other divides in society, then I would say I begin to see it happening and I would have a certain trust. Still a gamble, it can go wrong, but I still would try then. Okay, Stefan, well, um, we're almost out and we are in fact out of time, but I just have to ask one last thing, which is imagine that Pakistan does embark on this development bargain today. Give us two or three sort of symptoms that you think we could look look for in this country. What type of perhaps new rules? Um, do you think it has to do with institutions binding themselves to further rules? Yeah. Um, what does what does the start of this look like for Pakistan's case? And and we'll end there because we're short on time. So, a couple of things that it would include, you know. One of the things that Pakistan needs to do, it can't keep on going back in these cycles of external finance dependency. It has to be willing to face the world and be outward-oriented. So it would have to be, whether it's in exchange rate policies or particular forms of industrial policies, it would have to be a shift away from all these non-tradable sectors, which get all kinds of benefits and move it into another sector. Secondly, it has to be, for example, on the fiscal side. You know, there is... Why do the subsidies and taxes look like it is? It's not because they're a rational way of doing it. It's because of who can actually block certain agriculture taxation, subsidies in the electricity tariff, how they operate. So generally, if we start seeing certain things that actually fundamentally may go against some of the interests of some of the key players, even in particular parties that get into power, then I would have certain confidence. And then... If I started seeing that both the establishment and different parties are quietly doing what we observed in Bangladesh or in India, is have a certain consensus that let's not fight our wars on all these games 
on a certain set of economic things. Let's not exploit this cheaply politically, but actually saying, look, certain things, we're actually going to be much more quiet about it. That's what countries where there's a minimal consensus or at least dominant coalition around some of these reforms is. They don't exploit it for short-term political gain. And then you start seeing it. So you could start seeing this, and I will keep on looking, and I hope we will see it, but I don't see another way to get out of it. One party imposing it on the rest, and the same fun and games will be happening, and nothing will ever happen. So you need to get somehow on that implicit consensus. Well, look, we needed about an hour more than we had with the five or six burning questions that I'm going to have to drop. But Stefan, thank you very much for being here. It's been an absolute delight. And I do strongly uh, encourage people to read the book. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having, uh, giving me the chance to talk. And yes, there's much more in the book. But thank you. This was brilliant. And I wish I could have more time to have all these questions answered. Thank you. Thank you.